Welcome to Fried Friday. This is Dennis Lifchak. And, and this is Adam Spitz. And we've got a new special guest for you guys. Uh, it's Ted Rosel. Ted, say hi. Hey, everybody. Ted's been in the food and beverage industry for a long time. He's a food scientist, and he's going to provide us some um, very deep expertise on some of the food safety issues uh, that are sometimes experienced in the commercial kitchen. And the topic for today is hot holding uh, cabinets open and closed and everything in between. We're so, getting universal all over this place. Oh, are you saying universal holding cabinets? I was alluding to it, but wasn't specifically saying universal. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there <laughs> very soon. Ted, thank well, you for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Ted. And we'll start off with like a little icebreaker. Um, so, you know, Little Caesars. Um, one of their most popular items is a hot and ready pizza. What do you think is um, the limit of how long a hot and ready pizza can be sitting around after it's being cooked, after it's been cooked? I, well, I mean, typically, you know, the shelf life of a sponge is, is pretty long. Um, so I think you could keep that for a long time. Uh, no, sorry, that was a joke. I'm, I'm not a big fan of hot and ready pizzas. I don't think they taste very good, but it's it's possibly because they hold them for too long. Um, I, I would guess they hold those things for a really long time. Or are you alluding to the point where pizza acts as a sponge and it will absorb moisture around it? <laughs> I was more talking about the uh, texture of the crust. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, see, Ted and I... Uh, we don't know each other that well, but we kind of sound the same. Um, so what Ted is saying, I 100% agree with. Uh, if you have that that spongy sort of, uh, I don't know, what, what would you call it, Ted, Dennis? Uh, what would you call that? Is it like overabsorption of moisture that creates that, spongy texture in a piece of crust yeah it's hard to say what it you know what it what was it originally um and then what did it you know so was it absorbing moisture is it losing moisture is it going stale is it drying out it's hard to tell what it's doing i'm not sure what its you know initial state was um like i said i'm not sure how fresh i've ever actually had one it's pretty rough, so though. Maybe the world will never know because Little Caesars is one of those uh, concepts where after a pizza is cooked, it's placed in a holding cabinet. And the holding cabinet probably has to do a lot with the flavor of the pizza. True. And to be fair, Little Caesar is a little dominator, right? So you have a little Caesar man or person um taking over the pizza chain uh that said i was recently down in southern california and dennis that's where you reside nowadays um and i went to a little caesar's for a completely different reason um but the uh i noticed that they had a lot of holding cabinets holding their food um, their, their prepared pizzas. And I'm wondering, is that common practice nowadays for a chain such as Little Caesars? Do either of you know? You know, I bet it is um, for Little Caesars. I'm not sure if any other pizza place could pull it off. Um, and the reason I think that is, you know, I'm not so sure many people know you can call Little Caesars and order something that isn't a hot and ready. You know, I think a lot of people just view it as a hot and ready store right now. 
So they drive up to get either a pepperoni or a cheese, or I think they have sausage hot and readies, but you could get whatever toppings you want on that pizza. They just, you know, so I think they're, they're sort of hoping people just come in for that one item so they can just stock it based on that turnover time, which I don't think would work in any other pizza place, you know, uh, maybe a pizza hut or something. If you have cheese pizzas or something, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting concept though. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's ready to go. And then you come in and Hey, you don't have to wait for a few minutes or whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. Is that your idea of what you're thinking there, Ted? Yeah. Yeah. Just it's, it's, you know, they know they've somehow whittled down, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of like the opposite of the have it your way concept. It's they've, they've whittled it down to you either getting the cheese hot and ready or a pepperoni hot and ready. So they know what you're getting when you come in the door. It's just a matter of how many do you want. Um, and then they can just pull them out of that box, uh, which is sort of, like I said, to me, unusual in a pizza chain, but they've, they've managed to pull it off. Hmm. So you said have it your way. Let's, uh, let's completely reverse things and talk about cold holding. Um, and at Subway, you sometimes have all these toppings refrigerated. And is there one topping that you would never have on your sandwich because of uh, food safety concerns being in a refrigerated rail setting? Um, yeah, it's definitely a Ted question. You know, there isn't something off the top of my head, um, produce wise that I would say never. Now, if I was, um, you know, if, if I was a pregnant woman or immunocompromised or something like that, elderly, very young, you know, um, things like raw spinach have been implemented, implicated in, in, uh, foodborne illnesses, uh, romaine lettuce is something I, that I'm pretty much always looking for, uh, uh, a manufactured, uh, city or location, um, before I buy it. Um, other than that though, I mean, you know, maybe something like fake crab meat, uh, that, you know, something like that, 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 you know, but, but I mean, not really. Not really, not 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 too much for me. So I think what I'm alluding to is uh, there's hot holding, there's cold holding. What's what's the danger zone, and what temperatures should we be holding our food and for how long? Well, that's a that's a great question, Dennis. And um, you know, I think you know the the temperature, the the two, um, you know, what we've been talking about uh, with Subway and with uh, Little Caesars, I've been presuming in both of those situations that um, their hot and cold storage is adequate. And so by that, I mean uh, out of the danger zone. Um, So the danger zone, when we refer to that, we're talking about the temperature zone between 40 degrees Fahrenheit and 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so cold holding, you want to be below that. So that's like refrigerators, you know, that's why you set your refrigerator 40 or below, uh, keep a thermometer in there and check it. Uh, and then hot holding, you want to be above 140 degrees. So things like, you know, chafing dishes or, or you guys, you know, you talk more about those storage cabinets and things. Um, you want to be above 140. Um, in between that zone is when, uh, you know, what we call the danger zone. And that's when microorganisms that, you know, are going to be present in the food um, are going to end up growing, you know, the, the most, uh, you know, quickly at that temperature. Um, you know, so we want to limit the amount of time we keep food in that zone. Uh, typically, we're looking at you know, two hours um, is, the, is the maximum amount of time you want food uh, in the danger zone. So I see a lot of uh, grocery stores or even um, some high production restaurants cook a bunch of food and then put it in an open chafing dish or a steam table and it just sits there 
for at elevated temperatures, let's say at 150, yep. is there anything wrong with just having that going for eight hours? Uh, you said at 150? Yeah. 150, yeah. So, I mean, once you're above that, um, so there's typically two things we're talking about um, with food. Uh, and those two things are going to be the safety and the quality. Um, the safety is really what we're most concerned about. Um, obviously, the quality is important. Um, that's why people are coming to restaurants. That's why people are buying this food. Um, you know, but but for the most part, what we're looking at here is the uh, is the food safety. So no, once you're keeping it at 150 or above, you're really going to have um, limited growth. Uh, you know, and all but but some unusual microorganisms. So most of them um, that we're looking at here are going to be, you know, what they call mesophiles, and those are going to be, um, you know, have their growth most, you know, quickly uh, in between that that forty and one forty zone. So hopefully, once we get above one hundred and forty degrees, um, we're actually going to start killing bacteria. Um, so, you know, how much we kill them and how long it takes uh, is really dependent on how high that temperature gets and what, what you know, what bacterial load you have to begin with and what kind of bacteria they are and, and things like that. So that's the threshold is like a 150 Fahrenheit degree temperature where you're not going to see that because I was under the impression that it was more like around 160, but I could be wrong. Uh, you're the expert on this. Well, it depends on it. So, you know, we use 145 degrees Fahrenheit will, you know, act as a pasteurization step. Um, but it, but it depends on what your, um, you know, what you're doing and what your, uh, you know, 165 is really, you know, where you want to be, you know, to kill and depending on what you want to do. So like 165 is what they would consider instant death or instant thermal destruction for a lot of things like salmonella. So, so all you have to do is get, you know, the interior of your cheeseburger up to 165. You don't have to worry about holding it there for a long time. So you'll often see on, um, like if you look at pork regulations these days, uh, you know, one of the things they'll call for is holding pork at 145 for five minutes or something like that. Um, and that's to hold it long enough uh, to kill those things for that long. So, so it's all time and temperature dependent. Um, and that's why the danger zone, same thing. You know, you're looking at that, that window of time and that window of temperature. Okay. Okay. And I think that that's a really good way to kind of traverse into the next area that I think uh, Dennis and I kind of were anticipating with holding. You mentioned holding, Ted. Um, what, what's the difference if you achieve that cooking optimization and then traverse into a holding pattern, is that something that you would say is critical as for is like, uh, you know, temperature holding? Um, yeah. Yeah. Can we kind of jump into that or did Dennis and I prematurely you know, jump the gun on that one. I think that's a great, I mean, that see, you know, one of the things I was mentioning was, you know, that two hour time window. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes it sounds like, you know, okay, I've got two hours to do whatever I want. Uh, and I get to an hour and 45 minutes and I haven't figured out what I want to do yet. So I can put it back in the fridge and I bought myself some time. And then I can pull it out later and I've got another two hours to figure it out. Uh, and I still haven't done it. So I put it back in the fridge and I buy myself some more time. You know, it doesn't really work that way. Um, you know, that time in the danger zone is when you're going to have that bacteria start to multiply and things like that. So you really want to use that, that window of time, that two hours to bring your food up or down, you know, to holding or serving temperature. And then once you cross that threshold, that's when you're holding it safely. Right. So, so if you're holding, you know, if you've got your pot of chili and you're, and you're putting it in the fridge, you want to use those two hours to cool it down, you know, and you don't get to use the whole two hours, but that's what that, you know, you want between the time you finish cooking it. So at times it drops below 140 to the time it's in the fridge and the whole mass of it is below 40. 
you want that to be no more than two hours. And same thing, you know, uh, on the way up, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, reheating something in a crock pot or something like that, or, or on a stock pot or on the stove, you know, you can't just let it sit on the lowest temperature for eight hours and have it never crack above 120. I mean, at that point, you're not cooking anything, you're just incubating it, right? And, mm-hmm. and so you're going to have, you know, <laughs> there's a reason that they, you know, when they grow microorganisms in a lab, they say they're growing it in a broth um, because it's the same thing, you know, in a, in a kitchen, that nutrient broth, I mean, that's perfect, you know, food for, for bacteria and viruses and things like that. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ted. Um, I'm glad you touched on that because that could be a health concern. That could be a food safety concern. And mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of that comes kind of, well, it just kind of floats over all of our collective heads. Mm-hmm. We're not necessarily thinking about that sort of thing. What we think of is, hey, I'm going to a restaurant, I'm going to a supermarket, I'm going to a grocery store, whatever the purveyor of food might be. Um, we're thinking, hey, we're safe. They got this covered. Yep. Yep. And that's that's something that we need to keep in mind is it's not necessarily always the case. I mean, not to say anything negative about, you know, against anyone, but that is something worth con- consideration, right? Sure. Absolutely. I think, you know, the reason, the, the, the fact that we can go to restaurants and go to stores and purchase food without thinking about it every time, I think is really a testament to the food safety systems that, that we have in this country. You know, wh- whether it's the USDA or the FDA um, or the you know Department of Health or things like that, you know, whoever's, you know, regulating which industry, um, you know, they really do a good job. You know, there obviously there are things that that sneak through. You know, I'm, I live in Louisville, Kentucky. We had a hepatitis A outbreak here a couple of years ago um, among restaurants. And, and that was, you know, a real thing. If you ate at fast food restaurants or things, you know, of that nature, you wanted to get a hepatitis A shot because, you know, there was a chance. That's the kind of thing that's easily passed in a food service environment. Um, and, and, you know, it's hard to, hard to, you know, quash quickly. And so, you know, there's, there's definitely things like that that happen. There's recalls and, and you see you know, foodborne illness, um, you know, outbreaks. Actually, I meant to give a shout out to Dennis um, for his uh, idea of the salmonella outbreak on, on last week's griddle episode. I heard you guys talking about the uh, Dennis talking about the onions um, as the, as the salmonella, uh, you know, fingerprint. And so that was, you know, that was an interesting one, um, yeah, but you know, we, we do a pretty good job. Interesting. What'd you say? Dennis? It's not chicken that uh, brought the salmonella. Um, it's mm-hmm. a lot of the times it's the veggies when mm-hmm. I guess you ex- expect it the least. Yeah, it's actually, you know, un- unfortunately and sort of, um, you know, in my opinion, one of the scary things is that new sort of norm um, that it's the produce, you know, that's being implicated in some of these foodborne illness outbreaks. Um, and when you see something like that, um, you know, it was widespread throughout the whole country, but still relatively localized in the hot spots like Texas and Virginia and things. But, you know, so that made me think something with a wide, you know, single growing region, maybe, but then a lot wide, um, you know, distribution chain. Um, but we're seeing that a lot, you know, like E. coli, 0157H7. That was your, you know, typically that that was in your, um, you know, ground beef. That was the the jack in the box, you know, microorganism. And now that's what's in, you know, romaine lettuce, you know, something that you're not going to cook to 165, you know, um, same thing with listeria, which was typically a hot dog, you know, deli meat, you know, cooked, cooked vacuum sealed, um, products. Now, you know, we saw it in apples a few years ago, uh, that were packaged in modified atmosphere. Um, so once you put them in those, you know, unusual packaging, then all of a sudden something like listeria springs up there. Um, and same thing with salmonella, you know, typically in raw chicken or eggs. Um, but yeah, now in, you know, tomatoes, onions, things like that. So it is, it is unusual to sort of see those, but unfortunately it seems like it's almost the new norm these days. 
what is the cause of that, Ted? That that is information that I honestly did not know about. Um, yeah. Wh- what's going on? Is it the is it the you know the the handling of the produce, mm-hmm. or is it something mm-hmm. different? Like, what is it? I, I think it's it can be stuff like the handling. So, um, you know, like I said, the apples is an unusual one. I think. Um, cantaloupe was also uh, implicated in a listeria outbreak several years ago. And it was another one of those things where it was um, kept under. So listeria is uh, anaerobic bacteria. So it, it likes to grow um, in, in uh, lack of oxygen. Um, it's also a poor competitor. Um, it doesn't do real well with other bacteria. So in something like raw ground beef, chicken, you know, things like E. coli and salmonella are going to outcompete the listeria and you're not going to have to worry about it. Um, where you see it is typically in things like uh, like a hot dog. So a hot dog's fully cooked and then vacuum sealed. Um, and so if along the way listeria gets introduced to the process, there's no kill step after the hot dog's already been cooked. So Except now listeria... Cycle, right? Exactly. And so listeria yeah. is easily killed um when cooked, although there have been studies done where they inoculated hot dogs with listeria and they tried to kill them on roller grills and they couldn't do it. And mm-hmm. so boiling a hot dog kills it, cooking it on a flat top kills it, you know, cooking it on a grill kills it, but putting it on a roller grill at a gas station doesn't kill it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, listeria is probably not going to give you many problems if you're healthy, young, you know, got a good immune system, but it causes all kinds of problems for people, you know, pregnant women in particular. Um, and so they think, you know, I heard at one point they thought up to 50% of the um, miscarriages that didn't have a known cause could be caused by listeria, just unknown, undiagnosed. Um, so it's one of the, it's one of the worst out there um, and, and seeing it and stuff, you know, it's easy to tell people to, you know, cook hot dogs till they're steaming, cook deli meat till they're steaming, or, you know, if you're pregnant, you know, but what do you do with apples? You know, what do you do with cantaloupe? And these are things that, you know, women are probably eating these because they're healthier than French fries at a place like McDonald's. They're getting the apples in a vacuum sealed bag with, you know, nitrogen blanket in there or something. And all of a sudden you, you've made a, a, an environment that's, that's great for listeria to grow. Um, mm. So in this case, it's that it is that extra handling um, you know, that's listeria probably wouldn't be there typically, um, but you've handled it in this case. So, the, you know, that in this case, that's where it's coming from. But yeah, it's, you know, in some of the things like the, the uh, romaine lettuce, um, I, I think it's it, it for the romaine lettuce is always a problem when it comes from Salinas Valley, California. Um, yeah. There's been a lot of E. coli 0157H7 outbreaks from, or, re, or recalls, you know, recalls and outbreaks from mm-hmm. lettuce in that area. And, and mm-hmm. I don't know why. Um, I actually asked an FDA inspector the last time I was uh, before one, um, and they didn't really have any answer either. Um, but it, it's thought maybe it has to do with how the water, you know, is, is you know, the wastewater uh, and the, the irrigation and stuff maybe is, is too close in, in situations like that. So sometimes sure. you can have some, some leaching and things like that, yeah. but it's been it's an a, ongoing problem. So it's interesting. It's a beautiful it's area. Very interesting. And, oh. uh, Adam, uh, Adam uh, went to school close by there, right? Yeah. I went to CSUMB Monterey Bay. It was down the road from yep. Salinas and Spreckles. And oh, awesome. Yeah. It, but I know farmers down there and, and, it's like, what can you guys do to mitigate these mm-hmm. issues? But mm-hmm. I don't think they have a solution, and it's not to their fault. No, it's just no. stuff no. happens. Like you said, the yep. irrigation, and who yep. knows what's infiltrating the aquifers. Mm-hmm. And that's part of, potentially, that's part of the problem. I don't mm-hmm. know for sure. I'm just speculating, you know? Yep. Yeah, I think that I think you you know if it was an easy fix, we'd we'd already have something, you know, mm-hmm. if 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 they could figure it out right away. But I mean, it's been 
you know, it's an interesting one, but it, it's happened before. Like I said, the spinach thing, that's what, what makes me think that because there was a spinach, yeah. um, you know, E. coli outbreak in spinach several years ago, and it turned out to be the water. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's easy. It, it's an easy thing to have happen, but yeah, the more, more handling and stuff. And then the more, you know, I hate to, you know, point at the easy one, but uh, you know, the, the larger the farms, the more concentrated, the you know the area the growing and, and raising of these you know food products are you know if one thing goes wrong then it really impacts a lot more people than if it was decentralized but it's hard to get away from that so there's really not sure a lot you can do. yeah ted and and that's a valid point i mean you you can't control every little tiny element of the food service distribution process and I think that's what you're alluding to. And mm-hmm. I think Dennis would agree where, you know, Hey, you, you just can't, you can't police everything. Right. Like well, there's, something's there's just protocols. well, there's um, protocols, but you can't, you can't make everything perfect all the time. And I think that's what the problem is, is you can't make mm-hmm. it all perfect all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of factors to manage, um, and some are definitely more controllable than others. And uh, I think we should switch gears a little bit. Um, I know we talked a lot about food safety. What about food quality, and how does holding impact um, food quality? Because people say that if you're getting fried food, you have to get it straight out of the fryer. Uh, there's all kinds of concerns with the quality of the food. Um, you know, once you're holding it at a safe temperature, you know, above 140 or, or below 40, uh, you're going to have all kinds of, you know, concerns um, eventually, but, but not hopefully not food safety concerns. Um, so, for instance, you know, once you're holding things above 140, you're going to have, uh, you know, enzymatic reactions that are going to take place, you know, more rapidly. Um, things are going to start breaking down, uh, browning more quickly. Um, you know, you're going to lose some moisture, um, through evaporation, you know, uh, just to, uh, once you keep things at that temperature, so you're going to have things, you know, dry out and, and, and sort of lose, um, some of that, that appeal. Um, so, you know, I'm just thinking of things like that hot and ready pizza, you know, that's been in that holding cabinet for so long, um, you know, or, or the, you know, chicken nuggets at, at McDonald's that have been in there, you know, holding tray for, for hours or something, you know, they're obviously best when you get them hot and fresh, you know, they're still crispy and and moist on the inside. Um, but you know, if they've lost some of that moisture and the crispiness is, is gone away, they're really, you know, not that appealing. And, you know, same with cold holding, uh, you know, you can, a lot of it's, you know, comes down to the moisture, um, and you know how you can keep that in the product. Yeah, and even like pakora, pakora, the Indian uh, appetizer that's very popular, whether it's vegetable or some other protein, um, that's something that that can dry out really quickly. And when it loses that moisture content, that's that's really when it just kind of takes a dive down to subpar consumption level, right? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of advances in technology uh, to cheat that time and temperature in the food drying out. So I think the two methods I've seen so far is uh, having precise timers on holding equipment where the countdown starts as soon as you take things out of the fryer or the oven and place it there and different uh, QSR chains or other outfits have limits for staff, how long food can be held there until it's discarded. And then the other way um, is moisture injection. So Ted, as you said, there's a lot of the fried foods can lose moisture as it's heated up. So uh, with enclosed holding cabinets there's usually a tray of hot water 
on the bottom that you either manually refill or sometimes it's automatically injected and you set a setting um, to provide a certain moisture level. And I think that's how a lot of um, at least fried chicken is held. And a lot of the times that's also a combination of a maximum timer, but I think it does extend the shelf life of a product from a flavor standpoint. I'll let Ted talk about that because I don't know anything about fried chicken. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's interesting. I didn't know um, that they did that. Um, but, you know, the, the, the adding back of some of that water that's going to be lost during um, processing, uh, you know, that's something that they do a lot of, um, you know, uh, IQF or individually quick frozen vegetables. Um, one of the ways they, you know, suffer from quality um, degradation is, is through Wait, dehydration. Ted, sorry um, to interrupt. IQF. What for it. can you? I, in, yeah, that's a term I've one, never heard of. <laughs> yeah, so IQF. So it's one of my uh, favorite. So there's a couple food. Uh, science innovations throughout the years. Um, canning is sort of a famous one. Um, Napoleon uh, needed a way to feed his troops. And so um, his uh, one of the people he, he tasked with that was Nicholas uh, Appert, and, and he came up with uh, apparatization, and that's the process of pressure cooking or canning. Um, but another one, that's a great one, but another one is uh, the process of freezing vegetables. So they used to, I don't know if people probably recall, uh, you might still be able to buy it from um, spinach, frozen spinach came in this block. Um, and now they sell it in a bag. You get loose kind of frozen leaf of spinach. It sort of doesn't make sense to me still in my head. Cause it's sort of a weird thing to freeze. Um, but I, I guess back in the day, all vegetables were sort of frozen in water. Um, and so you got a block of frozen corn or a block of frozen peas or a block of frozen spinach. Um, and so this process that they invented, I believe it was Green Giant invented it, came up with it. But I could be wrong about that. It's been a while since like I Like the Jolly story. Green Giant um, on the can. Okay. Yep. 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 And so they came up with this process called um, IQF or Individually Quick Frozen. And so what they would do is they would spread out the produce on a you know thin layer and use a blast freezer um, to freeze it quickly. And they would freeze it as individual pieces. Um, and then it would stay frozen, get packaged frozen, stored frozen. Um, and so you would have this pourable, individually frozen you know kernels of corn that you'd use. And it really kept the quality of the product very high. Um, one of the things that really degrades the quality of products when you freeze it is the ice crystals. That's basically what happens is the, as you freeze slowly, you get these big yeah. ice crystals. It punctures the cell walls and it leaches all the moisture out, um, which is, you know, the same kind of stuff Dennis was talking about with the fried chicken. But what they, you know, if you quick, if you freeze quickly, um, then you won't have that, that same moisture loss. Um, but you'll still have some moisture loss through the freezing process. Um, and then you lose about 2% moisture. Um, 2% of the weight of the, of the product is lost during frozen, uh, freezing. So what they do is before they go through this process, they spray it with water to add that 2% back. So when it freezes, it loses that 2% water and it's a net zero process. And then you get your, your frozen product um, that hasn't gone through that dehydration process. So it's still, um, so adding that, you know, just like that fried chicken, adding that water to the process um, when you know you're going to lose it is a way to sort of balance that reaction out. Now that is one of the most fascinating things I've ever heard. I didn't have any idea that that was the way they prepared that product. Um, wow. I, I mean, I'm learning more than, anybody could possibly be learning right now <laughs> so well that's what we we work best behind the scenes if, <laughs> if you know 
You don't. You don't, You literally don't want to see how the sausage is. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the that's the theme, or that's the saying, right? So let me ask you this, Ted: If is that exclusive just to produce, or does that same method of moisture injection or application process result? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm trying to think of any specific, um, you know, a lot of processing, a lot of food processing, uh, they'll do, um, you know, equation balancing, you know, sort of mass balance, energy balance and, and, and water. And, you know, one of the things they'll do is if they have water that's needed in the process, you know, I think of, uh, or, or if they need, you know, transfer energy in certain ways, um, like for instance, sausage making, um, since we were just talking about it, they, you add a little bit of water to the sausage recipe, um, but they'll typically add it in the form of ice, um, because sausage is one of those things that's made. Um, it's actually one of the few, this is just a weird thing. Uh, it's one of the few meat products that's made pre rigor mortis setting in on a, on a, uh, corpse i guess uh, whatever the meat term is <laughs> it's probably not corpse um but yeah you you typically slaughter an animal uh and it you let it you hang it and and let it uh rigor set in and then the, the muscle sort of relax and can then whatever but with sausage you're grinding it up anyway so they'll typically put it in as soon as they butcher the hog um the meat will still be hot and they'll use ice to cool it down to get it under that danger zone um to bring it back to our food safety topic so yeah, they use water in all kinds of weird ways um, when they're they're thinking about the processing of these things. They're trying to always sort of um, maximize the the either the you know heat transfer or the way they're using these things. Mm. I see, but I, I sorry, Dennis. I gotta just I gotta throw it out there. Um, I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a meat consumer. Um, so when you when you say that stuff, Ted, uh, I don't take offense to it, but uh, know that some of your audience members may not be in the same genre of connoisseurs. Uh, no, I absolutely. I you know I I took some meat science classes in college. Um, I did some field trips to some weird places. Um, it's not. I, I never want to work in the meat industry. I still eat meat. Um, I think it's important to see how it's done uh, to get the whole picture. If you're going to make that decision and work sure. in the industry and yeah. stuff. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely don't uh, begrudge anyone who doesn't eat meat because it is a weird, um, I eat more plant-based stuff than I used to. Um, these days. <laughs> so, no offense uh, to you, man. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe I derailed us on that oh, topic. Yeah. Uh, that's just no way. That's no way. I, I totally get it. I totally get yeah, it. This is uh, stuff that happens in the basement of Garriga's building, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That Dennis is right. Dennis has been down there. Uh, I went to the University of Kentucky and the uh, with Dennis um, and he participated, even though uh, he wasn't a food scientist, he still came to our food science club meetings and, and things and got to see the weird uh, you know, <laughs> situation, the dairy science labs and things in the bottom. I'm of the not surprised that he ventured down there. <laughs> yeah. That sounds yeah. like a Dennis. Dennis was always up for it. <laughs> I took field trips to, to bourbon distilleries. Those, uh, the fun memories I had. Yeah. Maybe the other stuff I blocked out. Bourbon and beef. <laughs> yeah. We did a lot of, yeah. Yeah, bourbon, beef. We did some Krispy Kreme donut factories. We did all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. So, um, so I know you talked about IQF um, processes, yeah. and what about French fries and uh, the freezing process as well as the blanching process? When cooking fries, uh, you've got a couple things uh, to consider. I think they typically blanch them or you know par cook them uh, in water just to, you know, sort of get that cooking process started. Um, you know, and then if they are freezing them, you know, some of those frozen foods, I think will be 
Um, frozen convenience foods uh, will typically be frozen at sort of that partially cooked stage. Um, so the rest of the cooking process will, will finish in the oven. Um, you know, so, so from, Ted, uh, um, the, yeah. the word blanching this versus parking does one involve um, oil, the other one doesn't. Or well, so par cooking is just partially cooking, um, so that that can really be any process. Um, you know, whether you're sort of sort of anything that that doesn't fully cook the product, right? Um, so uh, blanching, I think, is typically reserved for a water or oil bath. Um, typically, what you're doing is is dropping the product into that um, hot water or oil. Um, and then, you know, keeping it in there for a short amount of time and removing it. It's still typically a par cooking process. Um, so it might be one of those things that sort of falls into the par cooking, um, category, but you could also par cook with steam or, or, or with other things. Um, but, but yeah, you, with a blanch, you're, you're typically going to blanch in hot oil or hot water. Um, and you'll do that again to par cook or, in some cases, you know, with green vegetables, um, you'll you'll blanch them to sort of set that color um, because, you know, otherwise, you know, those enzymes uh, can sort of start to break down some of the chlorophyll and things like that. And you'll you'll lose some of the, the bright green color. So if you want to set that, sometimes they'll they'll blanch things like uh, broccoli or, or spinach or things like that. Yeah. Um, French fries, you know, again, it's typically... Uh, you'll you'll do um, two, a two-step cooking process, um, you know, with, with French fries, and so you'll you'll sort of cook them partial the way part of the way first uh, to to cook them through, um, and then or you know not necessarily cook them through, but to get the cooking started, um, and then you'll do a final fry um, uh, on the you know so either boil them first, steam them first. Some of I've seen seen some places that'll bake the fries first and then do a final fry um, as the, as the secondary cooking method. Do you do some sort of like a form of uh, like an ice chill or an ice bath uh, after the initial cooking process, or do you go straight from, Hey, we pre prepared this and it's just going to sit on the, you know, the, area i don't know the the ambient yeah. condition and then drop them into uh, a final finish it depends on what you're doing but but a lot of times the blanching process involves a ice bath step or a cool you know chill step to stop that cooking um i think that's one of the things that that typically you know with a blanch it's a short cooking process that's you know um we think, you know, a lot of times in food processing, um, we've got, you know, we think of things like high temperature, short time pasteurization, you know, where you'll bring or flash pasteurization, where you'll bring things up to the temperature you want really quickly, and then you cool them back down really quickly. Mm -hmm. In food processing, we typically, um, you know, use things like heat exchangers or, or uh, you know, things like that to, to, to transfer that energy quickly. Um, but yeah, in this kind of processing, a lot of times you'll use an ice bath or a cool water bath or something like that. Okay. So it's, it's like, here's your birthday party for a little bit of time, but it's not forever. So we're going to take that pinata out of your, out of your time there and do something else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, exactly. if you want to put it that way, I don't know. Right. Right. <laughs> I might not have put it exactly that way, but I, I think I would agree with you. Okay. Uh, I don't know. So, so with French fries, um, have you ever been to In-N-Out, Ted? In-N-Out Burger? Yeah. Yep. Um, have you had their French fries um, a few minutes after, well, let's say half an hour after they've been cooked? Um, I know I've sat in the line for a half an hour before. I'm not sure. I've probably eaten them. Yeah, I've probably let them cool down before a little bit. Well, um, so their their French fries are freshly cut, um, and they're not pre blanched. Would you say mm. that they're known for if you don't eat them fresh, they're, they yeah reabsorb the moisture versus you know McDonald's fries. Some people yeah, like I, the McDonald's fries cold. Yeah, I don't I don't personally care for the In and Out fries that that much. 
Um, I didn't know that they weren't um, pre-blanched, but that doesn't surprise me to learn that because I do think they suffer. I don't think they, they have the best quality on their fries. I think they'll, they can sometimes end up with sort of a mealy texture um, when they do that reabsorption of the, of the moisture and stuff like that. Um, and I think that's probably due to, yeah, some maybe incomplete starch cooking and stuff on the inside that might, you know, you probably could do a little bit better if you, if you did that, that blanching or pre-cooking. Um, but yeah, that doesn't surprise me, but fries are tough, right? I mean, that's a, that's going to be a tough thing to, uh, to, I'm not saying they're doing it right, but I'm just saying fries are tough. We all know, you know, it's hard to keep fried food, um, good for very long. It's a wonder that a drive-through ever invent existed on a you know Long John Silver's. Wait, did you just say Long John Silver's? I didn't even know they were still in business. No, they're not. They're not. Oh, okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just thinking of a. I mean, they sort of are some somewhat. I think Yum spun them off a couple of years ago. Okay. But I think. Uh, okay. Yeah, All right. Fair enough. What were you saying, Dennis? What about chicken wings? Sometimes um, there, there are different schools of thought where some are fried, some are pre-baked, then fried. There's uh, other processes of cooking. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of, you know, what, what you're going to – sort of what you talked about earlier with the fried chicken, um, you know, a lot of it's probably going to come down to how much moisture – you know, it, and I think that's, you know, you look at some of the historically fried cuts of chicken, you know, the leg, the drumstick, the thighs, you know, those are those those are going to be more um, they've got more fat and more, you know, connective tissue and stuff to keep them moist um, during that cooking process where you get, you know, chicken breasts and stuff. Those are going to tend to dry out no matter what you do to them. Um you know, but that's sort of where a lot of the healthier conscious, you know, consumers are going these days. So that's an even bigger challenge, you know, to try to keep, you know, already dried out chicken breasts from turning out to be completely, you know, a piece of shoe leather or whatever by the time you're done with it. So, so do you think that if the chicken was separated into pieces and each piece was actually held at different, maybe moisture levels, Uh different cabinets or um, if you have different shelves where Uh you have more moisture on the bottom Uh if you want to sort it that way yeah i think that's a really good idea dennis and actually you know um same thing with what you were talking about max holding times and stuff i think you should definitely you know from a from a quality standpoint absolutely think you know maybe chicken breasts and chicken thighs are going to have a different max holding time um, just based on the, the, you know, makeup of those individual pieces of meat and stuff. And, and yeah, I think, you know, I would definitely think they would probably need to be, I mean, they, you know, and that's one of the things I think that, you know, people I've seen people ask me if I ever wanted to do like a whole hog, uh, you know, cooking thing. Uh, And I think it's weird because I think most of those cuts of meat, require different kinds of, um, you know, cooking methods to really be, you know, optimized. And I think the same thing, if you're looking to hold, you know, chicken breasts and chicken thighs and chicken wings and drumsticks and all that stuff, um, optimally, not just sort of a one size fits all, then yeah, I think absolutely. I would specialize that, the, the, you know, humidity and moisture level and the temperature, you know, all that kind of stuff for each individual piece. Yeah. I I'd go with um, the preference on broccoli and tofu, uh, personally, mm-hmm. but you know different <laughs> different proteins, different uh, veggies for different people, well, and that's totally cool. But what I would say is that if there is one universal way of holding food, whether it's you know. A, whatever it could be it could be a protein it could be a a vegetable doesn't matter point being is that um i i really like the the uh the aspect of that it can be held in different cavities 
different humidity levels, um, different temperatures, and it can be adopting to whatever scenario that particular product is being held at. And I think that's the beauty of the versatility of the, the holding cabinet, the cook and hold cabinet, the combi oven, the, the list goes on. There are a lot of different manufacturers that make a lot of different equipment that can do that same job. Yeah, I think this is a good spot to kind of conclude our podcast. Uh, this was, um, Ted, really appreciate you uh, giving us background on food safety and moisture retention. And I think this is, uh, this is a great lead into our next episode, which is going to be talking about different holding cabinet technologies and how different cabinets for different industries or purposes try to retain um, this kind of moisture and temperature balance. So Ted, do you have any last words before we conclude? Uh, uh, thanks for having me, uh, Dennis and Adam. It was a, a you know a pleasure being here. You, uh, I love talking food science as you guys I'm sure have figured out by now. Um, so and I, and I love listening to the podcast. So um, th- again, thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to listening to the next one uh, and hearing about those uh, those hot and cold ha- uh, cabinets. Well, Dennis, not to intercept your uh, response there, but Ted, thank you very much. Um, We absolutely just appreciate this so much. Uh, There's so much more to discuss, uh, and you have tremendously wonderful insight. Um, We we just have a lot to talk about still, and and yeah, you know, it'd be fun. Ted for a coffee episode um, in the future too. I think I'd love to. I can't speak on the coffee with as much uh, uh, authority or expertise, but I can definitely uh, drink some coffee and chat about it. I'd love to do that. Hey, game on, man! <laughs> well, thanks everybody for listening to Fry Friday. Goodbye. <laughs>